Hey, this is Brent Chess, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And making his third appearance on the show, he's a very kind and thoughtful man, a charismatic, well-known musician, just a general all-around good guy. Hmm. If you haven't guessed who it is yet, it is Mr. Blair Packham. That's very nice. What a great introduction. I'm Thank happy you. to have you here, sir. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming. And you brought your guitar. I did. Awesome. There it is. Very yeah. good. All right. So you're going to be playing after we talk about your songs. Yeah. So before we get into your songs, mm-hmm. what's going on with you these days? Well, um, as usual, I'm doing about a, um, a dozen different things to make a living. Yeah. The one I enjoy doing the most is playing my own songs around town. Mm. And honestly, I'll play anywhere. I will. What is that thing they say? Um, play at the opening of an envelope. You know, um, <laughs> like I will play anywhere. So I do these little gigs for people who are indifferent sometimes, but usually I win them over by the end. And uh, sometimes I play for people who are actually there to see me, but I love doing that. Anyway, uh, other things um, I teach sometimes like on and off Mm -hmm. uh, at Seneca College. And I recently started a gig booking music at Hughes Room Mm -hmm. in Toronto, which is, I I think Hughes Room is Toronto's premier listening venue. Mm -hmm. People go there to listen to music. They don't go there to talk and they don't go there to watch the game on TV and they don't go there for the food even, even though the food is quite good. They go there to listen to music. So there's no talking while people are playing. The sight lines are really great. And Mm -hmm. we like to program, uh, you know, an eclectic mix of, of different genres of music and just recently, I had this idea to get into a spoken word kind of thing, and that's where you come in. Yes. <laughs> so I am so thankful for that. Thank you very much for setting that up. So that's Thursday, June 27th. Yes. And I'm super excited about it. It is the first ever live audience recording of No Sleep Till Sudbury. It's so exciting because I, I really enjoy your podcast a lot. I've listened Thank to you. a lot. At first, I only listened to the episodes with me on them. <laughs> and... Uh, but then I listened to a whole bunch of other ones. And first of all, you're really good at doing this, oh, thank you. at drawing people out on the subject of music that makes your skin vibrate, thank you. you know, music that moves you and makes you feel something. You're really, really good at that. But the subjects you've been able to engage, like the people you've had on are great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Thursday, June 27th at Hughes Room uh, in the West End of Toronto, you're going to be presenting this thing live, which I think is really great. It's going to be a lot of fun. So we will have Rob Pruce, X spoons and Honeymoon Suite. And we will also have Carol Pope. X Rough Trade. X Rough yeah. Trades. It's going to be great. So we have a couple of little surprises yes. happening. Rob is going to play. Carol. Oh, wow. See, yeah. these are surprises even to me. You know? So the piano is there. Yeah. Right? Piano's there. So Rob, obviously, is a great pianist. So he's going to play a little bit. But when Carol comes up, I think he will come back on and play a little bit as Carol is. Because he, he accompanies her as well. That's right. Yeah. They've written a song together. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. So, Rob Bruce, I was talking with somebody about this on my way to meet you today. Okay. And I was saying, yeah, Brent's going to be doing a live version of his podcast at Hughes Room on the 27th of June. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I mentioned the guest, my friend said, oh, Carol Pope, yeah, love to hear her talk. Rob Bruce, yeah, not so much. <laughs> Because Rob's a side man, yes. because Rob is not the, you know, a front person. And, and so if you think you're familiar with the Rob Proust story, you, you might think, well, yeah, I guess that'd be okay or whatever. But here's the thing. His story is very interesting. Oh, yeah. Not only, as you mentioned, keyboard player in the spoons when he was, he started doing that when he was like 15 or something. Yes. And then honeymoon suite after that. So two sort of iconic Canadian bands. Mm-hmm. But then when he decided to become a musical director and, and, and uh, you know, for musical theater, he went straight to New York, straight to Broadway, Broadway. and yeah. interned and, and apprenticed. And then be- and he's he's like one of the guys. He's yeah. one of the people who is a central figure in the Broadway musical world. That's now. right. Yeah. And so his story, I think, is actually fascinating. You know, and not again, not just for honeymoon suite fans, not just for spoons fans, and not for, just for fans of musical theater, but anybody who's interested in how these things work mm-hmm. and how you build a career and how how did you do that? How did you get there? Exactly. You know what what did it take for you to you know to make that leap? This is a kid from Burlington. Exactly. I was just going to say that it's a kid yeah. from Burlington. Joined a band when he was fourteen. Played bars. He had to get his mother's 
permission. Yeah. Or the, you know, it was, it, but just, it's a great, fascinating yeah. story. Yeah. A friend of mine used to play uh, double bills with him at the edge, uh, the, a club at the corner of Church and uh, Gerard, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, the edge pl- had all kinds of new wave acts, inc- including the police. Oh, wow. Um, like, like it was a major stop. And uh, they would do double bills with the spoons. And uh, Rob would have been 14 or 15 at the time. And, uh, and my friend said, because he was a few years older, like 18, 19, and he, he said they were so cute because they arrived and they put, they you know, in their Burlington suburban kid clothes and then they'd put on their spandex yeah. and they'd, they'd dress up like rock stars. And he said they were just so cute. They were all good looking yeah. and they and they put on their, their, you know, their stage clothes and suddenly they looked like <laughs> rock stars. And, uh, and he just said, he just said they were great. Yeah. You know, nice, nice people as well. He said they were so nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he's yeah. a tremendously nice guy. He really is. Yeah. yeah. Very, very thoughtful guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll be great. And of course, Carol Pope with her history uh, uh, in uh, Rough Trade, in in many ways leading the way in, in the city of Toronto and Canada uh, for sexual freedom, for the expression of sexuality. You know, she, I believe she helped you know, Canada break out of the, the 1950s mentality Absolutely. that really carried over into the 80s mm-hmm. uh, and and Rough Trade were a part of, of getting out of that. Yeah. A brave pioneer. He's yeah. back to 81 when, when High School Confidential came out. Yeah. Well, and going back before that, when they were a club act in Toronto that without songs on the radio, you know, they were very popular and there was a, you know, sort of a fetish community then, but it was tiny and really underground, mm-hmm. uh, like not... You know, and somehow that it was connected with the punk, the rise of of the punk aesthetic. Mm. So there's some kind of crossover. Maybe it was the leather. I'm not sure. Leather and studs. That's a good event. Yeah, but but there was some kind of crossover. And she she and Kevin Staples, her partner in Rough Trade, they were um you know they were like the iconic band of that movement. They weren't really punk rock or anything like that, but they somehow they weren't really new wave particularly, mm-hmm. but they somehow became emblematic of that stuff. Yeah, which is which is really cool. So I'm sure she'll have great stuff to say. Oh, I cannot wait to yeah. hear all about how that whole thing unfolded. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of history there. Yeah. Go back if you can. Go back before High School Confidential because oh, that's sure. when they became mainstream. Yeah, like before that, there was all kinds of cool stuff going on with those guys, yeah. including, by the way, ask them about the um, the direct to disc recording they made uh, at a facility called Jamf. It was in Yorkville. It's, it, Jamf was J A M F. It stood for Just Another Mastering Facility, and uh, they made a, a live recording, not with an audience, but it was direct to disc. They wanted the highest quality audiophile recording possible, and they were chosen to be the sort of guinea pig band. And what it meant was they had to play a song, pause for four seconds, mm-hmm. play another song, pause for four seconds, and they do a whole side. A 20-minute side of a record, like five songs, wow. without making a mistake. Because oh, if they made on. a mistake, they'd have to start again because it was live from top to bottom. You couldn't stop, no overdubs, you know, no stopping. And, and that record sold a lot for a record like that. And when they originally sold them, they were numbered. And uh, I think I had copy number 422 or something like that. You still have it? Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. Yeah, it was, uh, it was something. I've it sounded wow. great too. I haven't listened to it in 35 years. Well, know? still. Yeah. But ask her about that because that was something will. that was groundbreaking. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like recording in the sixties again. Yeah. Well, in the, or in the forties in a way, yeah. because by the time the sixties came around, there were, uh, multi-tracking had become very common. Mm-hmm. Like even the Beatles, they did the vocals after. You know, did they, um, to, to, well, originally like, they were recorded. No, they were mixed to mono, but they, I believe they, on the, I think on the first sessions they did the vocals after. If not, certainly on the next records they did all the vocals after, yes. and then they were into multi-tracking and yep. bouncing and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. This is this no overdubbing. Mm. Yeah. Wow, all live, no mistakes. Well, we'll talk about that for sure. <laughs> yeah, and many other things. Yeah. Okay, so shall we get into your tunes, sir? Yes. Your first one is "The River" by Bruce Springsteen. Oh boy, yeah. Tell me about so, that. Again, remind me. Now, the idea is I'm supposed to tell you why this makes my skin vibrate. You're supposed to lay down on the couch here. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> well, you know, there's some psychology going on here with this song. Absolutely. At the the time when this record came out, 79, 80? I can't remember. around the river there. came out, yeah. Yeah, 80. I was a solid Bruce Springsteen fan. I'd already seen him in 1975 on the Born to Run tour. 
mm. in Toronto at the Seneca College Fieldhouse. Nice. Uh, there were 3,000 people there. It was December 21st, 1975, and he was unbelievable. He really was everything the hype said he was in terms of putting on a show, in terms of the great songs, great and expansive songs, like the songs that... They weren't songs that were just limited to three and a half minutes um, with solos and stuff. They'd sometimes extrapolate into tempo changes and and different sections and stuff like that. And and so it was beautiful stuff. It was mm-hmm. it was really great. Initially, I thought his voice was ridiculous. I thought he sounded like he had marbles in his mouth. You know, really? in the day we sweated <laughs> out on the streets. You know, um, but I got over that pretty quickly. And yeah. by the time the river came out, I'm sold. So river comes out. And I guess I gravitated to the title song first. I can't remember, but it was the one that hit me the fir- uh, hit me the most and the fastest. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. In 1980, I would have been 19 or 20 years old, depending on when it was. And I gravitated. I told you this last time, actually. I gravitated towards songs that were more portrayed characters who were more mature, older than I was, for some reason. Mm-hmm. So we talked last time about Hello, Hello in there, yeah. uh, the John Prine song, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's it's from the point of view of an old person sitting behind a screen door talking about being old. Well, mm-hmm. I, was, I was like when I first loved that song, I was fifteen. Yeah, you know, other kids were into Kiss. I was into these songs about old people. So I don't know why. But anyway, the the river. It's about the inevitability of certain things happening in life. It's about regret. Mm-hmm. Regret is huge in my psyche and in my life, and songs about regret require a certain depth that you know party songs don't have usually i mean you know even a song that regrets partying is pretty shallow yeah because it's about oh, i drank too much last night you know shouldn't have gotten so wasted like eh, you know that's maybe you know it, you know if we look back on 20 years of getting wasted maybe there's some depth there yeah. you know but if it's about last night it's not you know the, in other words songs for youth you know for younger people they tend to be uh, more party songs and sex songs and stuff like that. And I, for some reason, I, w- I was, I don't know, like. Down to the river and into the river we dive. Oh, down to the river we'd ride. Hi, hi, hi. Then I got Mary pregnant. And man, that was all she wrote And for my 19th birthday I got a union card and a wedding coat Now those memories, they come back to haunt me They haunt me like a curse Is a dream a lie if it don't come true? Or is it something worse that takes me down to the river? So, for my 19th birthday, Mm -hmm. it gives me chills right now. Not my performance of it. (laughs) But (laughs) for my 19th birthday, which is the age I was, I got a union card and a wedding coat. Mm Mm-hmm. He's singing the song from a much older age, looking back, you know, but like he gets Mary pregnant. Next thing you know, their lives are set, Mm -hmm. not in a good way. And in terms of the the inevitability, but also being locked into a path, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden your freedom to choose whatever you want to do. You've now, if you're a responsible person, you're going to have to take care of. Not only the the child that's coming, but the the person you're now with, and so forth. Like, it's a lot of responsibility for a guy who's still a teenager. That's and right. I just found it very moving at the time. And the bridge is uh, is fantastic. If I can just remember it, the bridge of the song does what bridges are supposed to do, which is sort of a break in the in the in the details, and maybe a look at you know, it's like stepping back from from the song. And I remember driving in her brother's car Her body tan and wet down at the reservoir At night on them banks I can't remember the next line, but I'd hold her close just to feel each breath she'd take. So he's reminiscing about what it was that drew him to her, and it's a physical, sexual thing. Which again, like, he's putting himself back in the mind of the 19-year-old, you know, it's like 
That's a very powerful thing. Oh yeah, uh, it remains powerful for for you know for lots of people, in, including me. Um, but it's you know it's like to me like it's that song is an embodiment of so many mixed emotions mm-hmm. and so much more complex than even than Born to Run or other Bruce Springsteen songs. You know, yeah, uh, which are simpler things. I think. Yeah. Anyway, that's that song for me. It's uh, incredibly meaningful and mournful and beautiful. I was when I saw your list. It reminded me of something completely obscure and off-topic, but I wanted to ask you this mm-hmm. as a professional musician, formerly of the Jitters. Uh, you know a thing or two about track listing. You mean sequencing? Yeah, like the order. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think so. So think about like Born in the USA. Yeah. So the first single was Dancing in the Dark. Yeah. Track eleven. Yeah. Why? Because he had, uh, this is my opinion, I've never talked to Bruce about this, but uh, I think because he had some more important stuff to say, mm. and yet he also, this is a guy, if you read his autobiography, it's an incredible book, by the way, incredibly sad in some ways, too. Mm. Um, but this guy is driven to be a rock star, mm-hmm. more than anybody I've ever read about, more than the Beatles, more than Elvis, more than Mick Jagger. You know, um, he wanted to be a rock star. He wanted to be the thing. He wanted to be Elvis. He wanted to be those people I just named. So I believe that the albums leading up to Born in the USA, which was his huge commercial breakthrough, it's when Bruce went from being a, not a cult favorite, but like a, not quite mainstream. He was mainstream enough, but he was like one of the also ran kind of people. He wasn't one of those people that we, that I just mentioned, you know, with Born in the USA, he became that superstar. Yes. And I believe that, you know, there's a certain amount of planning that goes into this sort of thing. You can't plan it with anybody. I can't plan to make a Brent Jensen record and you know what we're going to do? We're going to make you a superstar. Mm-hmm. But but if you had put out four records before, five records before that were ramping up to this, same thing happened with Bare Naked Ladies, by the way. They had their deal in, in America. And when it came time to make, uh, the record was called Stunt in mm-hmm. the late 90s. And when their record company said, we think we're ready to make that record that, you know, takes you over the top. And they did. It sold yeah. 12 million copies. Yeah. And the record company knew in advance it was going to do well. They just didn't know how well. You know, and sometimes people miscalculate and they, and they make a flop. But the point is when you've been ramping up like that. So, so Springsteen was ramping up like that and they get to Born in the USA and they put out Dancing in the Dark because it's catchy and it's a little innocuous. Mm-hmm. It's a love song. It isn't a heavy political statement. If he came out with Born in the USA, the, sing- the song itself, as the first single, right. for half of his audience, that would have killed it. And and it's interesting because that song, he didn't mean it, I don't think, to be ambiguous, but it is. Born in the USA sounds like a jingoistic, patriotic song. It's not. It's an anti-Vietnam War song. Yeah. And it's plain. He talks about his brother dying in, in Vietnam, his fictional brother, ad, ad, admittedly. But in the song, he talks about his, his brother dying, and, and it's clear he's not in support of this, and yet it's ambiguous in a way that pop songs usually aren't. It's like, yes, I was born in the USA, but it comes with all these regrets and, and gray areas. So I just think that that might have been too complicated a thing to put out as your first single. Yeah. Hmm. I just wondered why they would bury that song way down in the 11th spot of 12. I think. Well, I, I think it was probably already buried because he had an idea of what an album, what this album was supposed to say. Mm. But then when they're combing through it for singles, they were like, well, there's dancing in the dark. And as an artist, it, that's actually kind of great because it's buried in the sequence of the record. But now it's going to get heard. Like, I've got songs on records of mine that I don't think anybody, even people who profess to be fans of mine, I don't think they've ever heard them. They're right there on the, on the CD. But, you know, nobody hears them because they never get that far. You know, they've got to do the dishes and they've got to let the dog out and they, they get distracted from listening. So yeah. those songs never get heard. And yet, and I, yet I sequenced my records like old school. So, you know, in the sense that I'm, I'm making a, an album statement here. Yes. So this song kind of needs to be at the end because it's kind of a closer. Yeah. But the fallout from that is most people ne- never hear. I, I addressed this issue on my second record. I put out a song called Last, which is the last song on the record. Really? And it says, so it goes, uh, I don't remember the key. So you made it, you made it to the end, I see Congratulations, felicitations, good luck, good luck. Yeah, I think some will never make it beyond track two or maybe three. 
So they'll never ever get to hear this song This song is a song all about itself Not concerned with love gone wrong or something else I've, I've never played this song live so <laughs> um, it's it's all about and and basically it's just saying it's all about the end of the record yeah and how sometimes the best things are last. Wow. And it's also acknowledging the fact that most people who have that record will never bother to get there. And it's just a reality. That's so, so funny. In the days of albums, you would get to the end because sure. you'd put the needle on the record and it would play to the, the end. You wouldn't be so concerned with changing artists or songs the way you are now because mm -hmm. it's all a single song world now. You have, have Spotify. Very rarely, I think, on Spotify do people play whole albums. No. You know, or any streaming service, not just Spotify. So you don't get to hear those last songs. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. So yeah, As I you asked. can tell, I have a thought about anything, anything you want to ask me. <laughs> All right, I got to ask you about Swingin' by Tom Petty. Ah, well, I love this one just as a songwriter because uh, it challenges me. Um, it's um, it's a song that they made up in the studio, mm -hmm. including the lyrics. Like Tom oh. Petty just made it up as they're running it down. Really? And it's like second or third take, I think, maybe even first take. And it's three and, chords, basically, right? Yeah, they they had a jam going with an idea that he had going, and then he just. Uh, he just started telling a story, basically. And I don't quite remember the story because it's not very cohesive. But he takes the song Swingin'. Yeah. She went down, swingin'. He takes the metaphor. He, and he says, like, Tommy Dorsey, yeah. you know, swing band musician, right? Yeah. You know, but like Sonny Liston, the mm -hmm. boxer, swingin'. Uh, and he lists, and, and it, I don't know, I, it's, it's a fun song. But it also is challenging to me as a songwriter and very exciting to listen to knowing that it's it's just off the cuff. Mm -hmm. I think the only overdubs on that are the background vocals, which are, um, they just have some group vocals singing, oh, like singing some, some lines. But the rest of it, I'm pretty sure, is just live off the floor. Really? Which normally I don't subscribe to, by the way, because people say that's more authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think... Well, you're still in a studio with microphones around you, and that's pretty artificial. That's I don't know how authentic that is. And you're still playing electric guitar through an electric amplifier and so forth, and I don't know how authentic that is. And you've still, you know, you've written the song and maybe worked on it. I just don't think authenticity, the way most people perceive it, is that important. Hmm. I think it's more important that the artists get to say what they want to say. But in this case, there's such a freshness to it that, for me, I, I'm sold in this instance on that idea. Yeah. That this is somehow more authentic or grittier and, you know. And I know at the time the band was going through a lot of trouble. And uh, this song, apparently, it was quite a relief to just bang it off. And there it is. And it's like, whoa, that's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so, so that song makes my skin vibrate because of that sort of visceral feeling. That was like the simplicity of it. It was from Echo. Yeah. You know, late, late 90s. It's like 97 or 98, something. Yeah. But that and Free Girl Now. Yeah, Just simple, beautiful, fun tunes. Yeah, that know. was the album uh, where Howie Epstein didn't show up for the photo shoot, didn't show up for some of the recording sessions because he was uh, preoccupied with heroin. And um, like in the photo shoot, there's there's the band standing there without him, and it's like what what happened? It was just that he didn't show up. Mm. I had that happen. Oh, really? Yeah, I had a band member not show up for the same reason with the jitters. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, don't want to name the band member, but um, he didn't show up to a video shoot for oh. a song called The Bridge is Burning that okay. was uh, a single from our second record. It's available on YouTube. And uh, <laughs> he just didn't show up for the whole day. Just what happened? He phoned and said, uh, or did, he couldn't have even phoned because there were no cell phones. I don't know. We got the impression he was going to come later in the day. He had phoned our manager yeah. who showed up at the at the video shoot and said, yeah, he's going to show up later, he says. And then he never showed up. And, well, it was drug-oriented. You know? Oh. Yeah. He was preoccupied with what was going on. He shot the video without him then. Yeah. And um, attempted to keep touring with him for a little while. And then in the middle of a tour, we did um, opening for Colin James mm. uh, across the country, playing small theaters. We did the Maritimes leg with him, but he would nod off on stage. On stage. Yeah, it was awful. So midway through the tour, we had to let him go. And it was awful because he was more than just a, a guy in the band. He was mm -hmm. a friend. Yeah. So uh, he cleaned up, by the way. And uh, apparently life is good. I haven't talked to him lately, but I've talked to him a few times in the interim. Good. So I think it's okay now. Wow. 
Yeah. Okay, the Isley Brothers fight the power is next. <laughs> okay, the Isley Brothers. When I was a kid, I I would buy forty fives of bands that I wasn't or of, of songs, uh, you know, forty fives, you know, seven inch records, uh, single songs with another song on the other side, and I would I, I said all that for the kids in the audience. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, you never know who knows what what I'm talking about, you know, and I would buy them for for artists that I wasn't sure about, you know, that I liked the song. And sometimes I go get the record. The sometimes I would go get the album, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of the time I would just have the forty-five. The Isley Brothers had such an incredible history in the music business. You know, they had you know before the Beatles had a hit with Twist and Shout, they had a hit with Twist and Shout. You mm-hmm. know, they uh, but they also and that was in the sixties through the seventies. They were this sort of psychedelic um, funk band. You know. I think Jimi Hendrix played with them, but it's certainly Ernie Isley, the guitar player, imitated Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Jimi Hendrix in the 60s played with him, in the early 60s played with the Isley Brothers. Oh, they that. had the, this storied thing. So I heard this song on the radio and I loved it, partly because as a kid, I was taken by the fact that it was sort of a anti-the man song, mm-hmm. right? Anti-establishment. By the way, I still had have, have those values. Like you get formed by the music you listen to when you're a, a kid and a teenager. Certainly. And... I try to play my music. They say my music's too loud. I try talking about it. I get uh, knocked on the ground. When I roll with the punches, I think I get knocked on the ground by all this bullshit going down. And for me, it was so exciting to hear bullshit in a song. Because mm-hmm. in those days, that was pretty out there. But also, to me, that's when, like, when an artist is really concerned with what they're saying, that's when they become an artist and not just an entertainer. So there were three guys singing that. And the one guy said it. I think it was Ernie. Yeah. And the other two guys were like, whoa. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know they that. They didn't know he was going to do it. It happened just spur of the moment. And after they, they kept recording, but after they said, who did you do that for? Yeah. And he said, because it's what people want to hear. Yeah. And it needed to be said. And it's real. Yes. Yeah. Again, my, my hair is standing on end. Yes. You know, now you hear the F word in everything. Like my kids in my classes at Seneca, they, they drop F bombs all the time in their songs. And I always say, you should be careful about that, not because it's offending anybody, because mm-hmm. these days it's probably not. You know, it might be, but it's probably not. You should be careful about it because it draws attention to itself in a way that you may not want it to. Maybe the you have to decide what's more important, that I say F this or F that, or the chorus where maybe that's the main message of what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So it's not out of any prudishness on my part. I just think that you can pull focus really easily to the wrong thing if you if you use profanity in a song but in the case of the isley brothers like to me it was just like you know this was post civil rights era but there was still like as there is today lots and lots of bullshit going on Mm -hmm. for people of color everywhere and you know we pat ourselves on the back in canada that we don't have that but of course we do um it's perhaps not as institutionalized as it is in, in the states but it's there and um I always considered myself, even as a teenager, an ally, you know, like hoping to help, not professing to understand. Even then, I think I recognized my privilege to a point, Mm -hmm. not as much as I maybe do now. I don't know. Like for me, it was really moving and and I loved it. Yeah. So next, you've got uh, Public Enemies Fight the Power. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, I'm not sure if they used a sample from the Isley Brothers record or not. I think they did. They reinterpret one of the lyrics, I believe. That's what it is, yeah. So there's a connection there yes. between the two. So immediately, instantly, I was drawn to the Public Enemy song because I'm like, whoa, wait a second. That's, you know, is that like, is that the same song? Did they, or did they sample it or what did they do? But it's so, it takes the, uh, the expression in the Isley Brothers. It's pretty much the same argument, which yes. is why the title is the same and, and just expands on it in a beautiful and galvanizing kind of way. I loved it. Like I, there's some old school rap that I really love. I don't know. I love that record. It's very powerful. Mm. Um, Elvis don't mean shit to me, or uh, and John Wayne, you know, and and yeah. like they they name check these white icons, and I get it, man. Like I yeah. like I like Elvis, you know, but but I can certainly get why somebody who's outside the mainstream culture and who's being force fed this stuff, and John Wayne's supposed to be the great American hero, when by all reports. You know, he was a racist mm-hmm. and he was, um, you know, uh, jingoistic for sure um, and uh, abusive and, and a bunch of other things, you know, um, by all reports, allegedly, you yeah. know. But for them to get at that, again, very powerful, skin vibrating. 
Oh, and Chuck D's voice. Oh, yeah. Right? So sort of authoritative, but also kind of weird, you know, yeah. with all that Hur! sort of, you know, announcing <laughs> kind of quality to it. Yeah. Yeah. I so, it. <laughs> somebody so, else brought Public Enemy on like episodes and episodes ago. And yeah. We talked about like the, the oddness of the pairing between Chuck D and Flavor Flav. Yeah. It's such a bizarre. It is, but of, it's, I think it's pretty cool. There, I was going to say it's John and Paul, but it's not quite that because both John and Paul and the Beatles were, you know, lead singers and they were, neither of them was a bit of a joke kind of thing. Yeah. But in this case, you have Chuck D delivering the message. Yeah. And you have Flava Flav delivering the levity, <laughs> but also underscoring the message too. Yeah. Like, I think it worked together really well in a, uh, I think especially in the way the rap world was working because there were, you know, there were characters who were, who were in some ways, like rap wasn't always very conscious, I mm -hmm. think, before Public Enemy. I think. I mean, if I'm getting my history right. So there was a lot of stuff that was just entertainment. Oh, for sure. It was, like, I don't think of myself of as an entertainer, right? But I'm not delivering a message like that because how could I, how could I, you know, but I do think of myself as more than just an entertainer and I don't have disdain for entertainers if they're really good, mm -hmm. but I do think that there are entertainers and then there are artists and then there are artists who are also entertainers and entertainers who are also artists. Last song, John Hyatt, fun little folk song, learning how to love you. This yeah. is great. Okay. So the opening line, 34 years old now and I've come to you I don't really know how I got through from the first days in the schoolyard to the last heart broke into I, I'm not sure I always forget at a crucial moment I don't really know how I I got to learn and how to love you. So to me, like, and I'm sorry for forgetting the lyric there because it's kind of a crucial point, but the point of the song is it took me all this time with all the other romances I've had and my, my history of, you know, being with other people and so forth to get to this point where now I can be a good person mm -hmm. with you specifically. And I, that resonates with me. I mean, first of all, starting with his age, I'm 34 years old now. First of all, that seems impossibly young to me. <laughs> That's true. Because um, I'm 60. So, I, you know, I'm 60 years old now. And it seems more appropriate to somebody my age, frankly. Yeah. And I'm single. And, I'm, and I haven't been single much in my life. So for me to be single for over a year now is, uh, is a new experience for me. And I really believe that when I find somebody, I'm, I'm looking you know, but when I, and I'm, and I'm dating a bunch of different people and we'll see, but when I find the person that I'm, I want to be with for the rest of my life, which I'm really, I, I believe I'm a romantic, I will be thinking something akin to that, that it took me all this time and all those other experiences to get to be right here, right now and learn how to be a good person in terms of love. And, uh, so that song spoke to me back then when I was only 24 years old and it speaks to me now when I'm 60 years old in a different way, different way, more realistic way. Cause at that point, I don't know if I was 24, I was 28 or something like that, but I, um, uh, had not had that much experience mm. in, in love. And I feel like I've had uh, in some ways more than enough now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it, that, there's a song that makes my skin vibrate. I mean, it's just, I love a, I love a great opening line. Mm hmm. And honestly, just declaring your age like that, like as a songwriter, that's pretty great. Yeah. Kind of locks you in though. Cause you know, what is he going to do? I'm 42 years old now. Yeah. Like as he gets older, I'm 98 <laughs> years old now. You know, I mean, any age will probably work, I guess, unless you're, I'm seven years old now, <laughs> you know, if you're working your way backwards. Um, but I love a, a great opening line. And to me, a, a thing that will draw you in is a personal fact like that. Yes. Like, you know, because everyone is some age and everyone can relate. And it's sort of like stating here, here's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And age is one way of saying that. If somebody says to you, Brent, how old are you? And you say, I'm X number of years old. It's kind of, then they're like putting you in, not in a box, but they're like, okay. They, they kind of get a picture just from that yeah. of where you're at, roughly. To say that as, a, as, a, as an opening line, I think is very powerful. You know, more so you delivering that personal yeah. piece of information in a song yeah. is quite something. Yeah. And, and I, I love a good opening line in, in songs because, you know, in this world particularly, nobody owes you a listen. 
when performers play somewhere and the audience is talking and they and they admonish the audience and they make snarky remarks and stuff, I kind of get pissed off. Mm. I know that it's great as a musician to have people pay attention. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, if you've worked hard on your songs or even just, you know, you're singing other people's songs, it, it, it's a drag when people are yakking away while you're playing and so forth. Yeah. But nobody owes you that. And people go out for all kinds of different reasons. If they do pay attention, I think that's a gift. But I also think you have to work a little bit to get them. Certainly. And opening lines are certainly one way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you're kind of inviting somebody into the song with your opening lines. Yeah. I, I, I think of the Warren Zevon song, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, uh, sweet, uh, the, the chorus goes, sweet home Alabama, play that dead band song all night, play, play them all night long. It's about, uh, Lyndon Skinner. Yeah. Um, but the opening line is, grandpa pissed his pants again. <laughs> he don't give a damn. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like, I want to hear more. For know? sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So an opening line is great and that Hyatt song absolutely has it. All, I think any of these songs I, I've mentioned. Yeah. Have, have something that draw you in pretty early. Yeah. So, yeah, it's important you, for me. When you said that, it just reminded me of that John Prine song, Sam Stone. There's a hole in daddy's armor, all the money goes. That's right. That's a that's a, a line that grabs you right yeah. off. Like, I'm sold on that. Yeah, what an image. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, uh, John Prine, master songwriter, underrated actually by uh, by most people. Although this, this year, I think he won a Grammy for the first time oh, ever. Yeah. Right. Um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of a, an acknowledgement, um, and certainly before he dies, because we all die, folks. Sorry. Sorry to what? bring you down. I know. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have told you right here and now. I should have bought you a drink first. <sighs> I know, well. bummed you out for the rest of the day. Yeah. But anyway, uh, you know, presumably John Prine will die someday, and uh, it's nice for him to get a Grammy while he's alive, because, you know, they, they sometimes give out these awards after, and it's, it's sort of mm. sad. Mm -hmm. All right. So now... Yes, you will be regaling us with some music, I believe. Yeah, uh, all right. I'll play you. Um, I'll play you one of those songs that got buried at the end of a record. Great. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I wrote this with my ex-wife Arlene Bishop. Oh wow, who I still love, and uh, I don't wish we were together, but I'm glad we're friends, mm. and uh, I love her, and um, and actually, I'm happy that things worked out the way they did because we're still friends and we're close and I love her partner too. He's a great guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think all that love has made it a, a better world for our son. But we wrote this together and it references our love because we wrote it when we were together. So for a few years, I was unable to sing it without crying, without oh, breaking wow. down and crying. Yeah, I'm, I'm good now. And, and again, I'm good because we're still so close. And it's a real gift, and it's a testament to her mostly. Mm -hmm. She's she's been amazing. I think once she realized when I told her I loved her that I that I didn't mean romantically. <laughs> I yeah. think I think then she was like, "Oh, okay, I can make this work." And she worked hard to to make sure that we stayed close. That's great. Yeah. So we travel together with you know with her partner and with Owen, our son. Yeah. And uh, we're going to California in the summertime together, the four of us. So uh, awesome. anyway, so this song, I was stuck and I didn't know how to finish it. So I, I called it I Don't Know because I didn't know. Wow. Yeah. All we know is all we see. All the rest is a mystery. Do the leaves hold to the tree? Does the shore belong to the sea? I don't know All we want is everything Everything the world is meant to be do the clouds hold to the ground? Does the silence yearn for sound? I don't know. A million stars hang up in the sky. And every one of them's been wished on once or twice 
I'm glad my wish came true You belong to me I belong to you for grabs Will you love me like you said Will you stay with me till death I don't know I don't know but I hope so That's great. Thank you. A uh, little wow. little raspy on the high high notes, but thanks. No, you yeah. hit it. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Nice progressions in there too. I like thanks. That. Well, yeah. Uh thank you. On the record, which nobody's heard. <laughs> well, I don't know if nobody's heard it, but but uh there's a slide solo in um um George Harrison had just died mm. at that time. And no, no, George Harrison when I recorded the slide solo, he was sick mm. with cancer again, and I thought, "Oh boy." And I'm a big Beatle fan, big George Harrison fan, and mm -hmm. I wanted to play a slide solo like George might have played. And uh, I think I caught something with it. I'm I'm really pleased with the way that record turned out. Do you know Michael Philip Voyevoda? No. He's a producer. He produced uh, Bare Naked Ladies and okay. uh, um, Kim Stockwood and, and uh, like uh, all kinds of Canadian artists. Um, he produced the Jerry Cans from, from Iqaluit. You know, he produced the Big Bang Theory uh, theme song that the Bare Naked oh. Ladies did. That's probably the most famous thing he's done. But he's done lots and lots and lots of other great stuff. And he's a really great guy. And he's a dear friend of mine. He produced that recording of that song that I just played. Oh, wow. He produced my first post jitters record and uh it was one of the producers i produced it with him but he did the bed tracks and when i did the the vocal so the the opening line uh all we know is all we see all the rest is a mystery he used to always go he's a mystery he's <laughs> a mystery like, like i don't know <laughs> and and so every time I sing it, that's, I hear, I see him actually. For sure. Yeah, with his goatee <laughs> and, and saying, he's a mystery with a smile on his face. So, uh, so yeah. now when I hear the song, I'm going to think of that too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, that was, that's an example of, of the song. Much of that I wrote in the car while driving. Oh, really? Because if I, if I, if I have an instrument in my hands, I start playing, I don't know, Beatles songs or Rolling Stones songs <laughs> or other people's songs and, and, uh, um, or riffs, you know, yeah. and that for me isn't that useful. So just driving along and, and I was just thinking about life and, and death and I was mm -hmm. thinking about love, um, and, um, and where all that energy goes when you die. I'm not an atheist, but I'm not an agnostic either. I believe in something, but I'm not sure what it is. I mean, I hate to say it because it's a cliche and it's uh, trite, but I believe in music. Mm. I believe, I mean, we're in a room together and we're friends because of music. Yes. Right. And I, when I teach my kids at school, every single person in my life, with the exception of, you know, cousins and, and, you know, and so forth, my sister, you know, but I'm friends with people because of music. Mm -hmm. It's everything is traced back to music. You're right. And music for me is, um, now I, I haven't read about it extensively, but it seems to me there's no, there's no evolutionary purpose to music. Mm. Right. So, the mere fact that I play this strings stretched over this box, strings made of metal and wound carefully and tuned to a certain pitch and then together they make a chord that can make you, well, usually a combination of chords, you know, a chord progression can make you feel something. You can bleep this out. It's a fucking miracle. Yeah, it <laughs> you is. Know? Certain chords. It's a miracle. 
you know, it makes people feel things. And I sing something over top of that. And if I'm good at what I do and if I'm lucky and, and if you're open, you're going to feel something. Yes. That's a miracle. Like we're communicating in a nonverbal. I mean, there's a certain amount of verbalness to it in the words that I'm singing and stuff. But, you know, I'm singing something maybe out to the world or out to, out to you know, a bunch of people in a room or on a recording or whatever. And you're feeling something because of that. Yes. It's a miracle. If that doesn't indicate a higher power of some sort, I don't know what does. Mm -hmm. Because it's a miracle. That's true. <laughs> I'll it, just it, say it, it over it, and over it, again. It does go. It, it transcends physiology in my yeah. mind. And, and, and I think evolutionary theory as well. Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, certainly my limited grasp of that. You know, you... Uh, I'm going to give you a little plug here. I saw you play a Dylan tune a couple of weeks ago at Hughes Room. Just you and the guitar. You, you played to make you feel my love, right. and I my skin vibrated. I got choked up. Oh, thank you very much. That's you know I, I think about what my purpose is. Like I think when I teach young songwriters, their purpose in playing songs, writing songs, playing songs, performing, it's all about them. Mm. And I and I know I was like that too. By the way. But it's all about like their self-expression. I ask them, why do you write songs? And they say, well, it's self-expression. Some say for therapy. Mm. And I think, yeah, but it's to be heard, mm -hmm. which implies a whole other thing. You know, like if it's just self-expression, do it in your room at home. Right. Like why play for other people? No, it's to be heard. It is. And why to be heard? Because you're trying to communicate something. And what are you trying to communicate? A thought or an emotion, usually an emotion. That's Sometimes it. both. But you're trying to communicate something, and that song, To Make You Feel My Love, for me, that was, you know, I lost my girlfriend last year, and uh, we had a complicated relationship at times, but I loved her. I really, really loved her. To me, when I was pining for her at the beginning of our relationship, to me, that song is about her and wanting her. And the song kind of tries to... Do you mind if I play a little bit? Please do. When the wind is blowing in your face And the whole world is on your case I can offer you a warm embrace To make you feel my love Evening shadows and the stars appear and There's no one there to dry your tears I can hold you for a million years. I, I don't need to play the whole song. It's just, to me, it's, it's a pitch. Sing, person singing the song is saying, I can do all these things for you. And at the beginning of our relationship, it spoke to me because at the beginning of our relationship, she was troubled. And uh, she remained troubled, unfortunately, and I and I didn't know. So that's part where I feel ripped off, actually, because I never knew how troubled. But I felt like she was troubled, and I and I was saying, "Hey, come on! Like I can help." You know, the bridge is. Uh, um, I know you haven't made your mind up yet, but I would never do you wrong. I've known it from the moment that we met No doubt in my mind where you belong I could make you happy, make your dreams come true I'd go crawling down the avenue Go to the ends of the earth for you To make you feel my love To make you feel my love And I'm crying now, so That song's very meaningful to me And thank you for your compliment And I, uh I mean, I know Adele had a, you know, had a hit with that, and uh, she um, she's an incredible singer. Hmm. Uh, I, so the version I like is somewhere in between Dylan's and hers. He sort of croaks it out, and and she sort of sings it a bit, maybe maybe a little overstated. But uh, I've heard a couple of versions by other people, and 
and I kind of like, and I like, I like singing it myself too, because it, because as I say, I relate to it personally. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, you know, music songs that some person I've never met, Bob Dylan, wrote, and saw another person I never met, Adele. I I heard her sing it, and but in both cases, moved me enormously. But then related to personally with another person who had never met them, yeah. You know, and yet I'm ascribing those emotions to the, you know, it's it's amazing the power of music and the power of song. Well, the thing I love the most about music is that it enables us to share our emotional identities with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I went out for lunch with, with an old friend yesterday and uh, we don't see each other as often as we'd like to. And he's pretty tight with his emotions. Mm. And yet he, he essentially, while we were at lunch, told me he loved me, which was really mm. nice. I mean, he didn't use those words exactly, but I got what he was saying. And it had nothing to do with music per se, but here's the funny thing. We met through music. You know, we mm. worked together. He was he worked on a TV series that I wrote music for and and we became close over the years. But when I first met him, he was like 19 years old and I was a fan of my ex-wife, Arlene, when I, I started playing with Arlene because Arlene and I fell in love. And so I was a fixture suddenly at the gigs that he he would go to see her play. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I appear. But we became friends then and closer and closer friends over the years. And uh, it's because of music. Yeah. You know, he has different interests. He's, you know. He, He's a, he's a different guy and we don't hang out that much, but, but it's music that brought us together. And I love that guy. And to me, that's a, yet another testament in an, in a never ending line of, of examples of how music makes my life what it is. And I actually don't think that it gets enough credit it music for the magic that it is. It doesn't. You know, my mother said to me once, don't you have enough records? I said, don't you have enough books? And she said, well, that's a different thing. And I said, it's not. It's really not. No. Yeah. So music is a very, very powerful thing. And, and uh, I'm so glad to be here to talk about it with you as, as we've done before. I'm very glad to have you. You're welcome back anytime. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for playing and for just for being you, my friend. Oh, I appreciate you. you saying that. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my friend, Mr. Blair Packham. Until next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.